and welcome to CCBJ Perspectives podcast, providing access to leaders and influencers within the ever-evolving ecosystem of lawyers and legal professionals. Today, our guest is John Grassman, president of Lowers and Associates Consulting, an experienced and recognized authority on corporate security management. Grassman leads Lowers Risk Groups, new consulting practice to provide a broad range of crime-related consulting expert witness and litigation support services for companies and their security and risk management leaders and legal counsel. Over the past two decades, Grassman has conducted thousands of site security assessments across several industries and has consulted on more than 700 civil cases involving premises liability or inadequate security. John is sitting down with us today to discuss the importance of security assessments, the process once the team is in place, and what general counsel should look for as they select security advisors. John, it's our pleasure to have you here with us today. Thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Kristen. It's great to be here with you today. So let's start off with why it's imperative for organizations to conduct security assessments in the first place and what risks they may be open to. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think first off, as most of us know, most companies wait for a negative event before they take action. That's sort of typical, right? That once once something serious occurs, um, then everybody's in full force to try to deal with it. Uh, part of why security assessments are so important is that you're analyzing those threats and looking for those vulnerabilities proactively. So you're not just waiting until the negative event occurs. And there's an old saying that I, I think is probably apropos is that, you know, the best defense is a good offense. And so conducting a security assessment is an offensive posture. What's at stake? Well, of course, human capital. I mean, the people and customers are the greatest asset that any corporation has. One may debate that, but that's certainly my feeling. The physical assets and the criticality of those assets, depending on your business, um, certainly the cyber and digital assets, which in this world today, um, the cyber realm has never been more important, especially given where people are working remotely. Um, and it was a challenge even before COVID. Brand, reputation, profits, um, and of course, reduced litigation exposure and business continuity. Those are all reasons why it is imperative to conduct security assessments, because if you if you think about what I just said and all those different categories of what's at stake, there's a lot. And it's it's one of those things where if you miss out on a couple of those, uh, there can be great exposure. So John, we've spoken about who should be involved in these types of initiatives. Why is it imperative that the general counsel be one of the leaders of security assessments? What I found, Kristen, over the years is that when you go into any size corporation, but for a minute, let's talk about corporations that have someone in-house, as far as in-house counsel. I mean, typically, you need a gatekeeper in, in these types of assessments. If you really want to look at the enterprise, you need somebody that's credible. You need somebody that works across different business lines within that company. So you need that liaison between the departments. So typically if you've got human resources, which certainly is part of the equation when, when conducting a security assessment, you have risk management, you may already have 
an asset protection or security team, you've got operations. And so you need a liaison who's going to support the security consultant in capturing the information that they need or working with them to provide sort of an assessment of what information is sensitive, what information needs to be protected, what information may be discoverable if you do have a lawsuit down the road, whether it's for an inadequate security claim, a negligent hiring claim, a negligent retention claim, uh, some sort of business continuity claim. And I found it very helpful when you have that general counsel or somebody from the general counsel's office that can help you decipher which information may be sensitive to that organization and which isn't, even from a compliance standpoint. There's also the element of assisting and evaluating self-imposed standards. So many companies will, will create their own policies and procedures and really create their own standards. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. I applaud that. But from a security and liability standpoint, it's really important to have corporate counsel as part of that so that they can assess whether or not the operational challenges can be overcome from the legal standpoint so that you're not violating your own standards. And oftentimes, that's not something that other departments are worried about. They may be worried about finances. Um, they may be worried about the business as a whole, but not so much focused on security issues because typically security doesn't bring in revenue, right? It's, it's one of those, it's sort of like paying for insurance. Nobody likes to do it, but you know when you need it, it's great to have it. And I think sometimes security gets put in that category. So um, it's best that those standards are evaluated with corporate counsel so that you can determine whether or not that's going to keep you out of litigation or certainly not make litigation worse. Um, I did talk a little bit about the litigation exposure and how to mitigate that across the organization, but also think about the post-event response. Because if you have an event, whether it's an active shooter or some sort of large cyber breach, you really wanna think about creating a post-event response team and you don't want to do that once the event occurs. I've seen it many times where people, companies are scrambling to put together this team after a negative event occurs. And I'm talking about a serious negative event. And you want representatives from the departments that I mentioned earlier. There may be statements that need to be taken um, and whether or not corporate counsel brings in outside counsel to assist there's still going to be statements that need to be taken. There's going to be incident reports. There's going to be an investigation. There may be issues about document retention and what to retain in the event that um, you are, you're anticipating potentially a lawsuit that could come down the road. So if you have the team from risk management, from HR, from the corporate counsel's office, if there is security to have them in there, and of course from operations and even from public relations. Um, I've told this story many times. I mean, when, when Representative Gabby Gifford in Arizona, everybody recalls when that awful event happened and, and she was shot at one of her meetings with her constituents. You know, what was interesting about that is nobody remembers where the event occurred, meaning there was a storefront 
right behind all those cameras. And that response team was able to make sure that the focus was on her and her well-being and not on the name of that retailer. And so little things like that can make a big difference in terms of public perception. That wasn't so much about a liability issue, but it certainly was about protecting the brand. So that's one example. And, and that's, that's why it's important that, that you get all these stakeholders involved when you're dealing with a security program and certainly with post-incident response. So tell us, John, once a company has their team in place, what are their next steps to move forward? Also, can you tell us how this might vary by industry or region? Yes, absolutely. I mean, there are so many different types of businesses, right? But the process can be the same. So whether you're dealing with a large retailer or a manufacturing facility or a real estate investment trust, you pick the industry. At the end of the day, to me, the process is the same, right? So they may have numerous locations. The location use type may be different. Maybe one facility is for research. Maybe another facility is for manufacturing. Maybe there's a retail facility. Um, Maybe they have a large digital presence. Um, Maybe that's where they keep their servers. So one of the things that you're actually looking for is, and this is the formula that can be used across the board. And I've used it, whether it's in any one of those businesses that I just talked about, is that you're assessing the threats, which sounds pretty simple, right? You know, what is it that, that can threaten human capital, that can threaten your digital assets and your position from a cyber standpoint, um, your physical assets? And you're looking at what the actual risks are by looking at event history. You're looking at inherent risks. Are there inherent risks in that business, whether it's a power plant or it's multifamily housing? Are there certain risks that are just inherent in that business that need to be addressed? Of course, you're also trying to consider potential risks. So whether they're external or internal, and, and what's come to light more recently as well is, you know, what are some of the insider risks, the insider threats? I think with the digital age, there's been more focus, certainly in the security management realm, on dealing with insider threats. Human capital, yes, it is the greatest asset of any organization, but there are individuals that can be a massive liability to any organization. So looking at insider threats is something that I wanted to bring up because I think more and more we're seeing that and looking for red flags um, where we can identify that potential uh, before it becomes a reality. You're also, Kristen, looking for vulnerabilities and what the corrective corrective actions are. So for example, you you may find that you have certain threats or risks and you acknowledge those, but How does that make you vulnerable and what are you going to do to change it? Um, That's really where you need to find solutions that are gonna be feasible for that corporate culture and for that operation. And that's sometimes the trickiest part of any security assessment, any engagement, at least that I've had, is that your first solution may not be operationally feasible. I mean, every security professional can tell you, well, we'll put up an eight foot high fence, we'll put guard dogs around the perimeter, 
um, we'll close off you know, any access from a cyber standpoint, um, which then won't allow people to do their jobs. You can, you can secure virtually anything. Um, having said that, as we know, security is not about perfection. It's about reasonableness because you still have to continue as a business. And we've certainly seen in our own government, you can't always protect the president. Even the Secret Service makes mistakes. You can't always protect your own capital uh, because there's misinformation or other things that we don't even know about yet. But the idea is that you have to have a number of potential solutions so that you can deal with those competing interests and to deal with the corporate culture. You know, everybody has a different risk tolerance. And I've had clients that have basically told me, look, you know, I know our people are getting robbed. I know it's an issue. Um, I do worry about it, but frankly, that's why I buy insurance. I don't find that to be a compelling argument, especially if you can take steps to minimize the risk. Um, but a lot of times it, it's the corporate culture will drive that. And so always have some backups in mind because your, your first instinct or what you think may be the best solution sometimes just does not work operationally within that culture. John, you know, what you're describing makes perfect sense to me. Uh, I deal with so many law firm executives and corporate executives. What's your experience when the, the bad seed is in the C-suite or a high level executive? How can general counsel or other executives deal with that effectively? You know, that's a great question. And I think that, you know, depending on the size of the organization, you know, general counsel may be able to, you know, work to bring in another trusted source. Um, and it, that may be outside counsel to perform an investigation. It may be um, somehow getting to the board. I mean, all these, all these pieces that we're talking about, what's the avenue where you're going to address the problem. And so it may be going to the board. That's tricky. And, and we've certainly seen that a lot of those um, investigations of wrongdoing when it involves somebody in the C-suite, they're not easy to deal with. And whether you have a compliance officer or somebody from corporate counsel, um, I can't tell you that there's a perfect way other than certain techniques that, that may bring it to light um, first privately and then we've seen some of these things go public and, and that may be the only way, although that's not certainly the first choice uh, because it, it does not help the company whatsoever. So I don't have a perfect answer on that, Kristen. I think that's a depend on the circumstances scenario. Thank you, thank you, John. Um, you know, we always like to get in a little white collar crime where we can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it certainly exists. So John, what should general counsel look for when selecting a security advisor and how can they determine the right fit for their organization's needs? Well, let me first say that in organizations that have a security program, they may have a chief security officer. Again, that chief security officer, depending on the definition, um, may be more focused on cyber threats, right? And a lot of times corporate counsel don't fully even understand what it is they're doing. Um, many corporations, you know, they, they may know enough to be dangerous, but they're certainly very reliant 
on the IT folks to give them the appropriate information. But in other organizations that, that may deal with the supply chain, um, that are dealing with security of the facilities, that are managing the security for with third-party security providers, et cetera, you want to find somebody that's going to work with them and be accepted to take the suggestions. And what I mean by that is you need an objective third party. Um, many times go into a corporation and, and to let the security folks know that, that we're there to help, we're not there to hurt their job satisfaction or their job security, but really to help them come up with solutions that maybe they, they've just been on top of it for so long um, that it takes a third party to see something different. And in most of my engagements, that's been the case. The security professionals I deal with typically are excellent. And it just may be those few nuggets of really important information based on my consulting practice where I've seen it work in another organization and it can work from them too. So I'd say objectivity, um, honesty, because at the end of the day, the assessment that you make and being prepared to talk about a plan B and a plan C if necessary and what's feasible, as I mentioned earlier, is critical because if you're going across the enterprise and you're conducting interviews and you're finding out what folks in different departments are doing or not doing, you really have to stress that, that you're not the enemy, that you're trying to make things better, make things better in all the ways that we had talked about uh, to protect the company. And so part of that is also the experience. Most security providers who do this type of work, you're bringing them in because you want to understand what best practices are. You want somebody that's going to listen. You want somebody that's going to recommend best practices that understands the standard of care and understands your business. And I would say in most engagements, any security consultant, the first thing that they have to do is understand what you do, understand what's important to the business, understand exactly um, where you're headed, where you want to go, what the roadblocks are going to be to instituting you know, possible security measures that you know, may affect operations, that they may enhance operations. And so I think that that experience um, is probably one of the most important things along with um, communication skills in that fact-finding scenario. And that's where corporate counsel can really help is that you want them to be a partner with you um, to help you and to point you in the right direction where you can gather facts. The, the goal is not to take up corporate counsel's time from other things. It's to have them help you and direct you so that you can bring things back to share with them and get their input. Um, so I would say that those are the most important pieces. Um, and also, you know, it, it sounds, I'll say just light um, and, and people have all sorts of beliefs about consultants, but, you know, at the end of the day, if you're really there to help and you're really there to make their operation better and to protect the assets, to protect the people, to protect their profits, and you do it in such a way that doesn't interrupt their business, which is their top priority, um, then I think you set yourself up for success and set your client up for success.
So let's shift to the environment that we're seeing right now. How have the global pandemic, escalating social unrest, and the shifting political landscape changed your perspective on preparedness and security? Well, it certainly changed our perspective on a lot of things, hasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> from a security, you know, I mean, from a security standpoint. So, one interesting thing when we think about it is we have not seen as much workplace violence as we did before the pandemic. Um, in terms of active shooters, right? Before the pandemic, active shooter scenarios were at the top of everyone's mind. Um, and I find it really interesting that, and it, it's not shocking, there's less people physically uh, in the workspace right now, as we know. So, but I, I think that that risk still has to be acknowledged. I don't think that it's going to go away. I think people will go back to work um, in terms of their physical space. And so the concept of workplace violence, which has always been defined, I think, too narrowly in terms of the disgruntled employee, right? It was always, well, we don't want a quote unquote postal event happening in our facility, but really workplace violence is, it could be any third party crime. It could be, excuse me, displaced domestic violence incidents that occur in the workplace. Um, it could be an active shooter scenario. It could be a disgruntled employee. And so those the insider threat component, especially when people are not necessarily physically in the office, they still have access to a company's trade secrets. They're still accessing financial information. And so the digital risk, the cyber crime that's occurring can occur when you're sitting at home working um, just as easily, if not more so, um, than when you're in the, in the office. So I think that those types of preventative measures to deal with the cyber related issues and then understanding that people will be coming back to work and not to let your guard down on the physical measures you're taking at your physical structure at your office. Um, be careful how much you change because there's, you know, you have to be prepared to pivot back uh, when people do start to flow in. I would also say that there's been technology advances on the security standpoint. And I'll, I'll give you one example that, that we use is that, you know, when people aren't front facing, they're not in the office every day, you, you sometimes don't know exactly uh, what people are doing or how they're doing it or for how long. You know, we've always talked about background checks, right? And that's been common. You know, people get a criminal background check before they um, are employed somewhere and it happens once and then it's done and then that's it. I mean, it's, it's backwards, but we never really look forward in real time. And so there's technology out there. I know it's something that we offer at Lowers Risk Group where you can look forward um, in real time and know when, when somebody has a court appearance for a a violation or some sort of a conviction um, that you may not know about. Well, technology now allows us to know um, if somebody has made a court appearance for an offense that's relevant to the job or if somebody needs help from the employee assistance program. So looking at the red flags, using technology to better measure insider threats and getting people help where they may need it, especially during a time 
like now where the pandemic has taken a toll on some people emotionally. And hopefully, Kristen, the, the social unrest and the changing of, um, as, as we'll call it, the political regime, you know, hopefully we'll take the temperature down a notch. And I think you have to be prepared for both. Um, but let's hope that let's hope that's the outcome. But let's prepare as if it isn't. Absolutely. I think that what we will see in the coming months as things are shifting and there are consequences for certain types of behavior that that will help bring more security to, at least that's my hope, to what we're doing, whether it's personally or professionally. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And I think that it it sort of goes back to what I started this conversation with. It's You can't just wait for the negative events to happen before you take action. And I will tell you <laughs> in doing this for 25 plus years, you usually get called in when things go awry and that's okay, but there are so many opportunities not to get to that point. And if nothing else, look, bad things are gonna happen. I mean, they happen no matter how good your offense is, but are you prepared for it? You know, Do you have the business continuity plan in place? Do you have the team, the response team in place? And it makes a huge difference, not only for employee morale. I mean, we really haven't spent much time talking about the cost of employee morale after a negative event occurs. You know, it's it's significant. And I don't think enough studies have been done on that. I wish more studies would be done. You know, if you have a shooting in the workplace or you have some other significant event, if you have a, a cyber breach of personal information, I mean, we've seen some huge breaches in the past and they're in the news for a week, two weeks, but they're not talking about a million people, a million customers whose information or, or employees for that matter um, is now out there and what it does to them, you know, and how vulnerable it makes people feel. So I think it's not a touchy feely subject. It's real. People can feel very vulnerable to that type of loss or the potential for that type of loss. And what does that do to their productivity? What does it do to how they feel outside the job? So I think as, as more and more companies start to quantify that, which is difficult to do, then maybe it won't be like buying insurance where yes, you know you need it, but it feels like all you're doing is spending money until there's a loss. So hopefully, Hopefully that's something that, that will be taken into consideration as time goes on and we have a greater sensitivity to what it does to productivity. That's a terrific point, John. And I think you know those are the types of pieces of information that our audience can really weaponize in terms of communicating with the rest of the C-suite or the directors about the trickle-down effects of not investing resources properly in security um, and getting out in front of th those types of risks are more than just, as you mentioned, you know, something something that's not insurable. Exactly, and and even even those events that are insurable. I mean, a, a premises security liability lawsuit, it's it's insurable. You know, somebody gets murdered on your property, God forbid and the family ends up suing 
arguing that you did not have a reasonable level of security. And this, this goes across the board for whatever type, maybe it's a hotel company. We've certainly read about those in the past or multifamily housing or a corporate headquarters. The bottom line is you need to be, corporate counsel will be needing to explain as will risk management, as will security if they have a security department. A, a large event like that may require you to articulate why you did what you did to try to minimize that risk. And it could be to the C-suite, it could be to a board of directors, it could be to family members for anybody that's been victimized, and ultimately it could be for a jury. And so my position always has been the explanation of why you do what you do to minimize the risk. It's you should be able to explain the same thing to everybody I just mentioned. It, it, whether you're talking to a jury or a board member or the CEO, it, it shouldn't differ in terms of what you did and why you did it. And I understand that corporate counsel is not in a position to say, well, I'm not a security director. Sure, I'm an advisor. Uh, I look out for the best interests of the company. And I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying that they're an excellent gatekeeper. They have analytical skills to help solve problems and understand um, what potentially may be discoverable um, and also to understand what potentially may negatively impact the company in ways that um, some other departments don't because they don't necessarily work in the same silo um, that other departments may. They, they seem to have a, a greater understanding about how the entity works as a whole, um, which I think is a perspective that any consultant can benefit from, which is why the best engagements I've had typically have corporate counsel involved. All excellent points. I think the only thing I would add to that, or maybe elaborate on, is you know my perspective has been that the general counsel really are aiming to support business needs, and so when you're talking about security, whether it's cyber or other types, um, it's not with a aim to interfere with achieving business success. It's actually there to fuel it. Um, it just may not look that way at first glance. 100%. And, and that, again, goes back to what we talked about earlier. If it doesn't fit within the operation and it doesn't enhance the probability of the success of the business and the profitability, then it's not going to be accepted. It's not going to be adopted. So you really need a strong rationale. If you're going to go in and try to change something that's going to interrupt the business, the operation of the business. Um, that's why you need a backup plan. And that's why, you know, throughout this, I've mentioned, you better have a plan B and a plan C. And I think that's where a general counsel or anybody in the corporate counsel of a company can really help because they may be able to tell you from the start, look, this may be what you think is a security consultant is the best advice, but I can tell you right now, it won't happen here. <laughs> so, um, and I've heard that many times. And so we figured out ways to make something happen that at least mitigated the risk, um, understanding exactly what you said, Kristen, that, you know, at the end of the day, businesses are in business to make money 
to serve their community, to serve their employees, to serve their customers. And security can't get in the way of that. They need to try to help enhance that. Absolutely. Well, John, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been our pleasure. Um, I hope that you and your family are well, and hopefully we'll be able to get together in real life sometime in 2021. Wouldn't that be great? I can't wait. Thanks for having me, and I look forward to that day. As do I. Well, let's keep in touch, and I look forward to the next time we can speak. Likewise. Take care. Take care, John. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.